You're listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church, a relevant biblical community. For more information, visit houstonsfirst.org. If you uh, have your Bibles, uh, I ask you to go with me, if you would, uh, to my life first, which is John uh, 6.35. And while you're going there, um, let me just take two minutes um, to honor your church and the impact that it has had in my own personal life. Um, I became a Christian when I was 18, and God saved me out of a Muslim family. And uh, as an 18-year-old, the night that I became a Christian, I I told my mom and dad that I'd given my life to Jesus. I said, I love Jesus now. And my dad said something that was a bit of a surprise to me. He said, you can't be a Christian. We're Muslims. And uh, the most devout I ever saw my parents as a Muslim was the night I became a Christian. And I, and I said, we are? You know, and um, the night that I went to get baptized two weeks later at the church that God had used to save me, uh, I got kicked out of the house. And uh, I was a bit fatherless for a while. And, and this one guy took me under his wing. He was an evangelist and he traveled around the country. Uh, he was actually Elvis Presley's stepbrother, a guy named Rick Stanley. And I was a Christian for just a few months, maybe about a month and a half, when I ended up in this room sitting in the very back row uh, because Rick Stanley, the guy that I traveled with as an intern, I say intern, I sold his books in the lobby, uh, but um, I ended up in this room because uh, he was speaking here, he was, he was preaching here. And afterwards, uh, I had a chance to go eat dinner with Rick and uh, Pastor John Bassanio. And 10 minutes into the dinner, these guys who were dear friends were bored talking to one another and they turned their focus on me. And for the next hour, um, Rick and Pastor Bassanio just poured into my life. And it was just like drinking under Niagara Falls. <laughs> and two giants of the faith, Pastor John Bassanio just pouring into me. He was just saying things and saying things. And I remember I left just kind of punch drunk, you know. He gave me like so many book assignments. He gave me so much homework. <laughs> and as we were walking out to the car, he was like, I'm going to call you. Make sure you read those books, son. I was like, yes, sir. And what a father figure. And uh, throughout the years, I just always remember just this kindness. And fast forward a few years later, I came uh, to a church in Sugarland on staff, and I was in youth ministry there on that team. And uh, we would bring our, our church group, our youth group, into this very room because your church has always had such a selfless posture of hosting things for churches like ours that didn't have the facilities or the budget. And I remember literally coming in this room and watching the newsboys turn in this stage, uh, you know, a drum kit upside down. And, uh, and a kid who we never saw crack a smile, all of a sudden crack a smile and eventually give his life to Christ. And just the legacy of the selflessness and the posture of, of a church that's so hospitable. When God planted this church, he had so much more than Houston in mind. He had all the churches in Houston in mind. He had the nations in mind. And to hear just even this morning about, just through Clark, your missions pastor, about what God is continuing to do uh, with just the way that you leverage partnership in this city with over 100 different ministries and bless them and, and, and just are an amplifier model and just helping them be salt and light and the way you support so many ministries. And then, honestly, just over and over again, I just think about the times when God has moved in my life, sitting there on like road 19 halfway through this room when I used to live here and come here for things. Beth Moore and her legacy and her ministry and her women's Bible study here and the impact that it had on people that eventually like were discipling me and she was discipling them. 
I remember when uh, you guys were going through your pastor search committee. It was a long, long pastor search committee assignment. Uh, one of the books that they read was, uh, it was one of mine. It was called uh, um, A Call to Die. And uh, I remember getting a chance to sit with several of the people on the pastor search committee and just hearing their heart and what they wanted. And then to see those prayers answered. And one of my, one of my heroes, Greg Mott, a son of Houston, being called to be the pastor here. And the way that it has just continued to be um, such an affirmation that God's man has led God's people to just love the nations through this church. Greg is probably one of my top three or four preachers that I turn to, you know, for my own personal growth when I turn a podcast on. And, and I'm just so grateful again for you and your selflessness and sharing him. And I, I just think it would be, um, it would be a, a missed opportunity and bad stewardship if I didn't just stand here. And I know you get a parade of guys who come here and he say, who say this, but let me just pile on. Um, thank you. Thanks for your faithfulness as a local church, and thanks for the way that you serve and you think about others and your selflessness and your posture. And, and it's, this church has had an impact in my life. I've seen God um, do things through First Baptist Houston or Houston's First, and, and, um, and I, for one, am better for it in my faith. And so God gets all the glory, but I just want to honor you in that and just say thank you. All right, can, can we just give God a hand for what he's doing in and through you? I'm so grateful for you. Um, I told you to give me three minutes, and I used four, so I'm sorry. But uh, if you have your Bibles not ready, uh, I'd love to look at uh, John 6:35 with you. It, it, the assignment from Pastor Greg, for those of us who are a part of this summer series, was a simple one. What is your life verse? And, and when he said that, I immediately thought of uh, just the simplicity of the assignment, but yet the difficulty of, like, picking a verse you know, that you would bring if you had one last sermon to preach or if that was your tombstone verse or if something uh, that, that there was going to be one opportunity for you that, that you would bring before people. There are almost uh, 800,000 words in the book of God. In, in, in the Bible, there's 783,000 words and there's 71,000 plus, right, verses in Scripture. And, um, and every single ounce of it, every single syllable of it is, is the word of God. It's a lamp unto our feet. There's not one ounce of it from Genesis, even Leviticus, to, to Colossians, to the book of Revelation. Like over and over again, every single bit of it is God's breath and, and God's truth. And, and I believe the word of God, every single ounce of it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, like it says about itself, right? Judging the bone and marrow and speaking truth into life. And, and I believe that, but... I think the assignment is simply not like pick one of your favorites, but is there one that continues to be a reoccurring truth that comes up over and over and over again in your life? And maybe like a diamond, you know how like there's one diamond and it depends on what angle you look at the diamond, you, you see different brilliance. Is there one passage that to the different circumstances of your life, you would look back on and say over and over again, this, this truth continues to show itself, Right? powerful, confirmed in the circumstances of your days. And, and the one that continues to come up in my spirit is, uh, is this one, which is John 6.35. And so we'll read it together, but you probably already know it. It's one of the great seven I am statements out of the mouth of Jesus. And a guy named Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor in England about 70 years ago, calls it bloody words because they literally were the words that cost Jesus his life upon a cross. That cost him his blood spilled at Calvary. 
Uh, I'm from the South, and so I am originally from Iran, but now I live in Nashville, Tennessee, all right? And so I'm a, I'm a Southerner, and, but even when I was in Iran, I was from South Iran, so I'm just prone to a mullet if you're not careful, all right? And so I say that to say, uh, uh, in the South, we call this verse I'm about to read, fighting words, y'all. Because when Jesus said it, it, it caused a stir. And when Jesus said it, it wasn't just a life verse, it was a death verse, a death sentence. And today, 2,000 years later, after Jesus says it, um, you know, the Sea of Galilee, um, it's interesting that 140,000 people this year will lose their life. We call them the martyrs of our faith. These are sons and daughters of God, our family members around the world who, who will lose their life this year because they believe this to be true. And I know it's not controversial when I read it here at this incredible church in the pulpit of one of my heroes, you know, but I, I just want to say, I know you're not going to get up and walk out when I say it, but I'm just telling you, like, there are a lot of people in this world who don't believe this to be true. But it's true. And, and it's the kind of truth, look at me, it's the kind of truth that makes every other truth make sense. It's the answer to the one question that answers all the other secondary questions. And the reason that I think over and over again, uh, I feel confirmed this is like the one verse above all the other verses in my own life is because you get this answer right and all the other answers kind of fall into place. And Jesus is asked, who are you? And he answers the question by saying, this is who I am. This is God's word. Jesus says, I am am. I am. I am. That was enough, by the way, to make people go, who does he think he is? He just said words that are only reserved for God to utter. And Jesus is like, exactly. I am the great I am. He says, I am the, not a, but the, not options, but exclusivity. I am the bread of Life. I'm the bread of life, he says, and whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the word of God. And what's interesting about Jesus' claim to be the bread of life is that ultimately, this is the gospel in a nutshell. Ultimately, this is the answer of who Jesus claims to be. And if you believe him in his claim, then all the other answers begin to make sense. What Jesus is saying is that everything else is not the great I am. Everything else will leave you hungry. Everything else will leave you wanting. Everything else might bring either false satisfaction or temporary satisfaction until you get the ultimate satisfaction down. He says, I am the bread. Everything else, every other buffet you go to, every other stream you bow down and drink from will either be poison or temporary will either be false bread or it'll be temporary satisfaction and I'm the only one that'll satisfy you. He's not just talking about the things that are false bread or things that, that are poisonous. He, he's talking about not just bad things, but he's talking about even good things that we, make, we become, uh, we make turn into bad things, that we, we turn into idols. I'm married, I've uh, been married, you know, now uh, for 27 years. 28 years, sorry, and um, I know, <laughs> if she was here, she'd tell you exactly the day, uh, 
and our kids' birthdays and all the other things that it's her job to do. I'm supposed to just, but uh, 28 years, I can just tell you, I, I adore my wife. I adore her. In the earlier service this morning, there was a lady right there in the front row, and she had her son on one side and her daughter on the other, and she was just going after the Lord Clark. She was just going after God. And I looked over there, and I just took my phone, and I just took a picture of her because she just was just in the shadow of her worship, in the shadow of her worship. Her kids were just going after God. And I sent it to my son. I sent it to my daughter, and I sent it to my wife. I sent that picture, and I said, I hope you guys realize that you, just like this lady, grew up under the armpits of a worshiper, <laughs> a mom who just went after God and everything about her life. What a blessing. I, I'm just telling you that to say, I love my wife. Anybody else married here? You love your wife? Yeah, good answer, quick. That's good, good, smart, smart men, wise men. But it wasn't like you just try to burn brownie points. You love your wife. So do, do you love your wife? I love my wife. But can I just tell you something? My wife makes a great wife. She may, I, was thought, I was thinking about that this morning when I saw that lady worship, and I was like, man, I'm so grateful that I have a wife like that, a worshiper of God. My wife makes a great wife. She makes a horrible bread of life. She makes a great wife. She makes a horrible, a pathetic God. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you know what? If you try to make your satisfaction, if you try to make the bread of your life, your family, my kids are awesome kids. I love my kids, but they make horrible gods. My, my daughter is amazing. My, my daughter got married a couple weeks ago in Cape Town, South Africa, and, and, um, and I, was, I was getting ready to walk my daughter down the aisle. And I looked over at her and I said, I just want to tell you, you, you just, you, I'm dumbfounded by the person that God's raised you to be. You're, you're just amazing. You're not just a beautiful bride. You're just beautiful. I said, I'm so proud of you. I said, I'm just thinking this morning. And I told her, like, we're, we're in the middle of wine country in South Africa. And I just looked at her and I said, I just want to tell you something. I don't, I don't remember one time where you ever lied to me. And she goes, well, I, I did. I go, well, you were good at it. I said, but listen, you're just, as, I said, I'm just trying to even think of like a time when you were, she was so good and so pure and so godly and and my son, Rudy, we adopted him from Guatemala when he was nine. The kid is a baller for God. I'm just telling you. So, so just so heart for ministry and, and such. An, I'm just telling you, I love my kids. I adore my kids. But I will not put them in the compromising position of saying, I'm going to double down on you being the bread of my life because they can't satisfy. One out of one children will let you down. One out, one out of one spouses will let you down. Ask my wife. There's one thing I'm very consistent in is being inconsistent in trying to be completely consistent. Anybody else with me on this one? And so I, I love my life. I love my job. I love my friends. I love my kids. I'm just telling you, I'm not demoting those people. I'm just telling you the best thing I can do to set them up for the win is to not set them up for the failure of asking those people or those circumstances or that job to be my satisfaction. And Jesus is reminding us, if I am your bread of life. Everything else becomes a distant second and everything else begins to make sense when the preeminent question is answered first and foremost. And it's the gospel in a nutshell. Am I your everything? And Jesus utters this, but I got to tell you, it's one of the first questions somebody asked me when I was not a believer. And that's when I guess it became a bit of a life verse. But can I just tell you this? Years and years and years later, Again, looking at the same diamond from different lights, different views, uh, that verse to me right now 
just has so much life in it, so much new way to think through it because of the context around the text. And what I'm going through right now in my own life. I wake up right now every day and I work with this organization called Four Others. And uh, we, um, we focus on vulnerable children who, who don't have a safe and secure place to call home. Some might be children in the foster care system, some might be orphans that have lost every kind of stability in their life and we think about them. And when I think about this verse, I think about the context that sets up this verse and it reminds me, it, it pushes me to, to like, it's, it whiteboards for me, this verse. The why, the why of what we're doing. Uh, just about every child that we try to minister to, that we try to serve, needs a home. But listen, look at me. They ultimately don't need to be adopted by a physical family. They need that, but they ultimately need to be adopted into the kingdom of God. A lot of these kids go to bed hungry every night. They ultimately, they ultimately need Jesus as their bread of life. Amen? But a lot of them aren't listening to this reality that Jesus is the bread of life because they're going to bed and they can't hear that truth over the hunger pains in their actual belly. That's why we call this right here what Jesus says, the gospel wrapped in a fish sandwich because of the context. What's beautiful about this is Jesus says what he says. He says these controversial fighting words, not because he's picking a fight, but because they're just, they're the truth. You can't get around them. I want to be your everything. And if I'm not your everything, then I am nothing. There's no second place. There's no top shelf. There's a throne. And that's where I belong. And when Jesus says what he says, he says it on the back end of the day before. The context for the text is that the day before, and if you grew up in VBS, somebody flannel grafted for you, all right? He grew up, in this text is in, the, is in the day before, where the day before Jesus literally fed 15,000 people an all-you-can-eat buffet of bread. If you know about the story, you know that uh, 15,000 people were on the side of the Sea of Galilee. We call it the Galilean tour. And everywhere Jesus was going at that moment, the crowds were getting bigger and bigger. I mean, everywhere Jesus was going, you know, he was making the dead rise. He was making the blind see, and, and people were hearing about it. And he was all the buzz at that moment. There was a lot of FOMO going on, all right? There was a lot of fear of missing out. And so the crowds were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they just wanted to see for themselves. And so by the time we get to this moment, the day before John 6, 35 is uttered, by the time we get to the, to the day before, there are 15,000 people, most theologians believe, that have come to the side uh, uh, you know, of the Sea of Galilee to, to, to see him and to hear him. And 15,000 people are there. And if you know the story, 14,999 of them have forgotten to bring anything to eat. <laughs> there are 14,999 people looking at each other going, did you pack a lunch? No, I thought you packed a lunch. No, I thought you packed a lunch. There are 14,999 people looking around. And the reason I say that is because we know from the story there is one teenager who packed plenty for himself and responsibly brought bunch of fish, bunch of bread, bunch as in bunch for him, nowhere nearly enough sufficient for everybody else. So 14,999 people didn't bring anything to eat. One responsible kid packed the lunch. Let's just call it probably a homeschooler. All right. <laughs> That's how they roll. They pack the best lunches. And he brings plenty for himself, nowhere near enough for everybody else. But then Jesus sees that there is in that moment, right, an immediate need. People are hungry. And that's not their eternal need. It is their immediate need. And it's interesting. The greatest 
preacher of all time. And I say that in the pulpit of one of my favorite preachers of all time. The the greatest preacher of all time finds a crowd of 15,000 people, and he doesn't go, let's do a couple of Tomlin songs, and then I'll get up and bring the wood. No, no. The greatest communicator of all time doesn't communicate with a a message, but he instead has a method. He finds 15,000 people that are hungry. You ready for this? If you're taking notes, write this down. He feeds them. He sees an immediate need, even though they have an eternal need, and he goes, let's meet the immediate need. By the way, he doesn't look and go, go do inventory and find out who believes in me. Find out who believes I am the bread of life. And if they believe in me, they get to eat. If they don't believe in me, not. he knew a lot of those people weren't there because they believed he was the bread of life. They just wanted him to be the bread giver, not the bread. But everybody gets to eat. And the generosity and the, and the heart of a servant. And so he tells his, his disciples, go get them in groups of 50 and bring them to me. And, and they do. And it's an all-you-can-eat buffet because the little boy brings a little bit of fish, the little bit of bread that he has, nowhere near enough for him. And he brings it in, in an act of selflessness. And Jesus doesn't need the little bitty bread and the little bitty fish from the boy, but he lets him be involved. He doesn't have to, he gets to. He lets him be involved in the miracle and he takes it and he multiplies it. That's the way Jesus always is. You just be faithful in rendering back to me what I've first given you. It'll never be sufficient for everything, but you just be faithful and look what I'll do and multiply it. You bring the water to me, I'll turn it into wine. You bring the little bit of fish, a little bit of bread to me, I'll make it an all-you-can-eat buffet. And Jesus meets their need. And then, don't miss this, the next day, They wake up and they're hungry again and they go looking for the one who met the immediate need and they come around the Sea of Galilee and that's when we run into John 6.35. That's when we run into, now that I have your attention, now that I've earned the right to speak prophetic, undeniable, call it what you want, controversial truth into your life, I want to tell you that what you've been sensing in your physical body is nothing but a tiny little illustration of an eternal need that you have and the hunger of your soul. And there is one way where you don't get filled and then the next day feel unsatisfied. And that is when you see me and you drink of my blood, you eat of my flesh, because I become the only bread that eternally satisfies the longings of your soul. And the method, the method is such a reminder that it's not just enough. Look at me. It's, oh, miss this. It's not just enough to meet the immediate need because all that does is make us a humanitarian effort. All that does is make us social work. If all we do, and that's, not, that's honorable and that's good, if all we do is we meet the need. It's not just enough for Christians to, to walk in and say, people need clean water, and so we ought to put a well there and make water. That's awesome because we just stopped someone from dying of malaria because they had clean water to drink. That's honorable, and that deserves the high five, but that doesn't mean that that's enough because ultimately for us, we do that so when they go, why do you even care? We say because Jesus is living water. We go and we feed a child who's going to bed hungry, like the 3.2 million who went to bed hungry last night in America. And we meet that immediate need so that when they ask, like, why does somebody care about me as a 
homeless kid or about me in a vulnerable state in my life going to bed hungry during the summer. Everybody loves summer because it seems like that's when you get to go to the lake and that's when you get to go. But I don't like, some of these kids are thinking, I don't like summer because that's like where I don't get to go to school and school is the only place I get a consistent meal and now I don't have a meal. So why do you care that in the middle of July I get a consistent meal? And it's not like I'm just meeting a social need or a humanitarian need. It's like I'm doing that so that if you ask, now that you've asked, it's because Jesus is the bread of life. So some people are all into the theology. Let me put it in this way. Some people are all into Jesus as the truth, but they're not into Jesus as the way. But what Jesus is, is why do you pick? I am the way, the truth, and the life. When you find the way of Jesus, let's meet a need. Let's serve a posture of humility. When you find the way of Jesus, it sets up the truth who is Jesus, which brings people to the life who is Jesus. They don't have to contradict. They are the strategy by which God gave us to do mission. You find the need, you meet the need. You meet the need, you meet the need, you meet the need. By the way, it means in that state, in that posture, you sometimes get taken advantage of people. But you meet the need and you meet the need and you meet the need and eventually they go, why do you keep coming back for more? Why do you volunteer? Why do you show up? Why do you meet the need? And you go, now that you're asking, it's because someone has met my ultimate need. And his name is Jesus. I remember when I, um, uh, about, about 20 years ago, when I um, would travel and do a lot of youth retreats. And uh, one time I was uh, in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and uh, I was with a church out of Memphis, Tennessee. This church out of Memphis, uh, Bellevue was the name of the church, had taken about 450, 500 teenagers and college students and had brought them to Gatlinburg for, for this like three-day retreat. And uh, and they had taken over this like comfort inn. Just about every single room at this comfort inn was basically this one youth group, you know, and, and they had rented this one room downstairs and all 500 would cram in there. And, and I was their preacher for the few days. And, and the last morning of the event, we, we were finished with this event. The last morning of the event, my wife and I are leaving the event. So we were on the very top floor. Uh, we get our bags, our little roller bags. We get in the elevator. We're the only two in the elevator. The event's over, you know, we're about to leave. And we get in the elevator and the elevator goes down one level and the door opens up and this cleaning lady comes on. I knew she was the cleaning lady because she had the cleaning lady apron on, you know, and the, and the cart, right? And so she comes in with the cart and she turns around and faces the door so we can't see her face, but uh, like my wife and I are in the back, right? The cart's between us and she's there, but we can tell that she's crying because even though she's not looking at us, we can hear her. She's going, <laughs> and her shoulders are going like this. And so it's obvious that she's emotional. So the elevator's going down and down and, and it's going down. We realize this lady is in this elevator with us with the only three in here, right? And she's crying. And so my wife mouths to me really quickly since she couldn't see us. She goes, she's crying. And I mouth back, I know. And she mouths to me, say something. And I look at her like, why wouldn't you say something? Because honestly, she's so much better than me than these, in these moments. I, I've done the spiritual gift tests and all that. I know my giftings. I'm like a salesman for God, all right? I'm a, I'm a vision, voice, and values kind of guy, all right? I'm a culture builder. And all that to say, like, I'm loud, and, but I'm not, a good, I'm not a good counselor. If you, like, come up to me in a little while and you're like, we're going through a divorce, I'll be like, gum? I'm just bad, all right? So why would I, when you have, like, 
her. She is insane. My wife is a shepherd. My wife is so good at counseling. And so, so she's looking at me like, say something. And I'm looking at her like, say something. And, and the elevator is going further down, further down, further down. And so I realize we're about to lose this moment. So between the second and the first floor, before we lose, just out of panic, I reached around the cart and I just pull. You know how all the buttons in an elevator are push except that one red one in the bottom, the pull? And this is before September 11th when Iranians could do stuff like that and get away with it, right? But so I, so I pull. And so as soon as I pull, I pull, uh, the elevator just stops and she's startled. The cleaning lady's startled. So she turns around and I said, ma'am, I'm sorry to startle you. I said, I'm so sorry. Uh, um, I said, uh, this is my wife, Jennifer. We just noticed you were crying and we didn't want to get out of this elevator. We just thought, I know it's crazy, but we just thought we'd pause. And, and I just want to ask, ma'am, ma are, you, are you okay? Is, is there anything we can do? And as soon as I said that, before I could even finish the sentence, she interrupts. She goes, are you with these people that have taken over this hotel for the past three nights? Are you with this church group? Are you with them? And I thought, one more person in the service industry brought to tears by a youth group gone wild, you know? <laughs> and so I just said, no, ma'am, because I'm not, because <laughs> I was just their guest speaker. I'm not even with y'all. I'm just a dude with a green card hoping to stay, all right? I'm just a, so. I go, no, ma'am, I'm not with them. She goes, can I just ask you, you've been here with them the last couple of days? And before I could even finish, she goes, what is wrong with them? She goes, I've never seen anything like it. She goes, I'm sorry to be emotional, but I just came to work today and I found out they're leaving. And can I just tell you, these are the craziest people I've ever seen. She goes, and she reaches in her bag, I mean, her apron, and she pulls out this water cash. And she goes, she goes, look at this. She goes, this is like $1,100 in tips. And she goes, that's just from today. Yesterday was like $800 in tips. And it's not just me. It's all the cleaning ladies. She goes, we're all just dumbfounded. For the first time ever, people want shifts that they're not even supposed to be at because they want to be around these kids for the past three days. She goes, I don't know why they're even tipping us. She goes, we haven't made one bed. We walk in the rooms. The beds are made. The towels are hanging. It's like we've had a week off. And she goes, it's just been crazy. And she goes, and I'm sorry to be emotional, but I just found out they're leaving. And she goes, listen, a minute ago, I just walked in a room with a bunch of senior high boys and they sat me down and one of them offered to rub my feet and I've got bunions. I'm like, you don't have to show me, lady. And, and she goes, and they knew my name. She goes, I didn't even have my name badge and they learned my name. Like, I'm not a worker. I'm a human being. She goes, and I'm just sorry to be emotional, but I just found out they're leaving and I don't want them to leave. And before she could finish, I interrupted her and I said, before we go any further, I just want to clarify, I am actually with them. <laughs> and she goes, oh, you're with them? She goes, can I just ask you, what's wrong with them? She goes, all we get around here are church groups week after week. All we get around here are Christians week after week. I've just never seen it. You know what she doesn't know she's doing? She's literally saying to us, she doesn't have the lingo down, right? But she's literally saying to us, I see Christians every week, but I'm kind of dumbfounded because these are Christians that are Christ-like. These are believers that are believable. She's, she's actually literally saying to me, hey, here's another way to put it. She's initiating the gospel conversation with us. And so my wife finally speaks up. <laughs> she finally looks at her and she goes, I can tell you exactly what's wrong with them. She goes, Jesus is the matter with them. 
And she goes, what do you mean? She goes, what you're seeing is like, I know these are not typical, typical teenagers. She goes, these are not natural teenagers or supernatural teenagers. The reason they know your name is because God knows, you know, their name. The reason they value you is because God values them. The reason you're important to them is because you're important to God. The reason, and see, my wife just starts boom, 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 and she just turns into Beth Moore right there, you know, and my wife starts just pouring in her, and the next thing, you know, she's asked a few more questions, and literally between the second and the first floor, we led this lady to the Lord, and the elevator goes down, and the elevator door opens up. She walks out. We walk out with her. The youth group kids are out there, and they're like, hey, what's up, Rhonda? And I'm like, Rhonda just got saved. And we just have a party in the lobby. And what am I telling you? I'm telling you is that for three days, they exuded the way of Jesus. And then for three minutes, we got to share in an elevator the truth. And then it brought life. And what no one gets to do is in the service industry no one gets to go to heaven because, like, somebody overtipped them. But they didn't just show kindness. They showed kindness that led to repentance. Jesus does that over and over again. He'll meet the woman at the well, right? And what, he, what she needs is the gift of presence. Like, I'm not ashamed to be next to you. I'm not ashamed. To, he meets, and the first thing he does is he, he just loves her and gives her what she needs in the moment. The last thing he says to her is go and sin no more. <laughs> But he meets the need so that he can earn the right to speak the truth. Over and over again, Jesus is our model. Do we believe Jesus is the bread of life? Well, then how do we present that on the tray of service? I like to call it worship service. Let's clean some hearts by getting some dirty fingernails. What I love about this church is like this is one of the most practical, opportunistic churches when it comes to just loving your city, you can literally within four minutes end up at a center where you can, on a random Tuesday, just love people and meet a need. To the ministry of this church, because over and over again, there are people who just simply won't take the gospel seriously. They will not take seriously. Jesus is the bread of life until they see the people who believe that, right? Love them in a posture, not of pity. Not we have to, but we get to. Love you just the way that you are. Because God did the same for us. Amen? Can I get you to pray with me just wherever you are? And just with your head bowed, can I just ask a simple question? Two, two, actually, two questions today. First of all, is he your bread of life? Today, as we're talking about that, maybe you're saying, David, I, um, if I was to be really honest, I, I've... I've just made Jesus a bread and not the bread. I've made him one source of satisfaction, but it's been Jesus plus my family or Jesus plus my identity at work or Jesus plus my toys. And, and I realized today that he, he's jealous for that one position that only he deserves, which is Lord and Savior of my life, my everything. If that's never happened, it might be that Long before the foundation of the earth, God had predestined this moment for you to come home. And I want to say that our team will be available as we worship now. And this song might be a song of invitation, literally an invitation for you to come. To come to the fountain and drink. To come to the bread and eat and say, Jesus, you and you alone. And maybe you can talk to a counselor and say, 
Um, I don't need him to be a supplement today. I need him to be my bread of life, my everything. Maybe that's why your marriage hasn't made sense or your fatherhood hasn't made sense because you've elevated other things and positions that only God, God alone deserves. Today, God is recalibrating that. He's waking you up to it. And just want you to know it'd be amazing if as we sing, you came to the front or you found a prayer partner standing here between the aisles and said, I just want to pray about that in my life. I didn't just hear a message today and audit it, but God spoke to me and I just want to be prayed over. And, and I think that would be courageous and vulnerable and honest and more than just you auditing a sermon. Maybe today you already know the Lord. You're saying, David, every time you said that, anybody, I, I know the Lord. I, he's my bread of life. He's my savior, but I'm really burdened for a lost friend who doesn't know the Lord. And today God's kind of invigorated again my strategy to like meet a need in their life. Maybe it's a next door neighbor and uh, financially, they, they don't need a humanitarian effort from you. They just need a friend. Somebody who's patient and kind and exuding the fruit of the spirit. And so I want to give you that chance to maybe um, come and just intercess on their behalf as well here at the front. And so can we stand together just all over this place and um, come before him, a faithful God who's just been so good to not just answer that question, but then to offer it to us. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church. We invite you to worship with us at one of our four locations at The Loop, Cypress, Downtown, or Siena. Follow us on social media or visit us online at houstonsfirst.org.